0: Get ready to hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about the United States healthcare system with your host of the Medical Truth Podcast, James Egidio.
1: Hi, I'm James Egidio, your host of the Medical Truth Podcast, the podcast that tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about the American health care system. My guest is a biomedical engineer whose son has autism. He believes his son's autism is caused by the MMR vaccine. In August of 2014, he released a video of a recorded phone conversation with Dr. William Thompson, a researcher at the CDC. Dr. Thompson claimed to have evidence that the CDC altered the rules of data collection for a study in order to omit data. This was highlighted in the popular documentary called "Vaxed," which is posted on the free resources page at Podcast.com. My guest has also recently collaborated with Children's Health Defense and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. where he wrote a book called Vax Unvaxxed. It is an honor to have on The Medical Truth Podcast my guest, Dr. Brian Hooker. Dr. Hooker, welcome to The Medical Truth Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm
2: doing great, James. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Please share with the listeners and viewers of the Medical Truth Podcast about who you are and what you do and your story. I currently serve as Chief
2: Scientific Officer of Children's Health Defense, and that's an organization that was started by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. back in uh, 2016, 2017. And I am a biochemical engineer by training. I also was up until May a university professor at a small university in Redding, California, and I've since retired. So now I can work full-time at Children's Health Defense. I've been involved in biotechnology research and biological research for 35 years since I received my PhD back in 1990. And I have devoted the past 20 years of my life looking at the epidemiology of vaccine injury. And my primary reason for doing that is because my own son was injured by his infant vaccines when he was just 15 months old and and sustained a very profound vaccine injury. And so that really changed sort of the trajectory of my life and my research work, formerly more into sort of biotech, applied plant molecular biology, applied fungal molecular biology, and now just looking primarily at vaccine injury epidemiology.
1: What inspired you to cause you did mention that your son has autism, correct? That is correct, yes. So what that's I take it that's what inspired you for yes. to, to do some research. And what did you discover?
2: Very early on, I I contacted CDC scientists directly because there was so little that was known about vaccines and autism and so little information. First of all, I, I was seething angry because many of the vaccines that my son received had mercury in them. And I had no idea. That's not on. A, that's not on a vaccine informed consent sheet. And so I was very angry about that. Why would you put a neurotoxin in vaccines in the first place? And so I called out CDC researchers starting in 2001. Uh, I had alphabet soup behind my name. So I thought I might as well call some uh, other scientists with letters behind their name and let's get to the bottom of this. And CDC, uh, through denial and deception, has stated that there's no relationship between vaccines and autism. And that's absolutely preposterous. There's nothing further from the truth. When I've seen it in my own research, Time and time again, whether you're looking at vaccine components or vaccines themselves or the entire vaccination schedule, there is a very strong link between vaccines and neurodevelopmental disorders, including autism. It was very personal for me, but I wanted to back away and do very good science and very robust science. And what I found was that the science that the CDC was doing was duplicitous and quite frankly, very lacking, very pedestrian and it was meant more to manipulate the public than it was to really inform people of what the truth was.
1: Yeah. So you did this research and it led to you, I believe, contacting, personally contacting the CDC, but you had to do it in such a roundabout way. In fact, I actually have a video that actually talks about that discussion and how you had to do that. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll play that here and we'll go from there.
0: Right now we're residing in the state of California. California is what's called a two-party permission state, so both individuals talking on the phone have to give consent before a phone call is recorded. There are also what are called one-party states. And in this instance, only one of the parties has to give consent. And it just so happened that Oregon was a one-party state. I couldn't just, on an ad hoc basis, record a phone call. I had to plan ahead make the calculated decision, make the drive up to Oregon, and record the phone call, and then come back. The first time I recorded the phone call was probably the most bizarre experience I think I've ever had in my entire life. I drove up to Ashland, Oregon, stayed in a Super 8 motel. We were on the phone for about an hour. I was sweating bullets. Ultimately, I did reveal to Bill Thompson that I did record the phone conversations. It was almost like he was in denial. And it wasn't until a second phone conversation that he said, you had no right to record these phone conversations illegally. You live in California, you cannot record phone conversations without the other party's consent. And I said, yeah, I know. That's why I drove up to Oregon. And he laughed uproariously. He thought that was the funniest thing. And all of a sudden I was off the hook. He said, Brian, you do what you've got to do.
1: So that conversation how did that transpire the actual with this Mr. Thompson from the CDC you contact him and what happens It's interesting because I contacted Dr. Thompson originally back in 2001
2: and he was very brusque and he blew off my concerns said, essentially, my daughter got all the same vaccines as your son, and she's absolutely fine, which is one of the least scientific statements I think I've ever heard in my entire life, and absolutely very callous. But incidentally, then there was a long gap of correspondence with Dr. Thompson. And then he called me back in 2013, and told a very different story. He called me privately. We were using our personal cell phones, not a CDC work address. We were corresponding. And then he started to reveal to me the depth of the fraud and the depth of the malfeasance at the CDC. And I wanted some record of that. He was sending me emails. He was sending me records from the CDC, things that I would have normally gotten from the Freedom of Information Act. But I felt compelled to record the phone calls. Because what he was saying was that they were taking information and destroying it. They were taking federal records showing the link between vaccines and autism and destroying those federal records, which is a crime. And you're not supposed to destroy federal information. There's a way of disposition of federal information. And I knew that he was also destroying this information that could control and could influenced public policy around vaccination and could have saved many lives of individuals who did regress into autism if it would have been appropriately released at the time. So I ended up recording uh, four hour long phone conversations
1: with him. Wow. So in, th- in other words, he didn't know you were recording him, correct?
2: No, he did not know at the time. No. So it was a one party state. I just, I live in Northern California. So it wasn't that big of a deal to go up to Oregon.
1: Sure. So you were able to do that, uh, through this loophole by going to Oregon, you tape him, you have several conversations. They're all, I take it all take place in Oregon. Correct. Most of them take,
2: took place in Oregon. I was also on travel and there were others. There were other States where I was happened to be at the time because I was traveling, that were one party consent state, so i would I would take that opportunity as well to schedule a phone call with Dr.
1: Thompson, Yeah, so you collect this data, and then what do you do with this data at that point?
2: It's interesting. Dr. Thompson showed me a way that I could get the actual raw data from the studies that they were using that CDC was using to indemnify vaccines from the autism epidemic. And so I reanalyzed that information and I found what he found. He was the head epidemiologist in the study. And back in 2001, he saw that African-American males when they got the MMR on time, were three times more likely to get an autism diagnosis than if you just delayed the MMR until after three years of age. And they buried that information. So I redid the analysis, got the same results as him, ultimately published this into a, in in a scientific paper in a journal, Dr. Thompson then revealed he came public in August of 2014. And as soon as he came public, then the journal in which I published all this information retracted my article. So so they took it down. It was really, it was preposterous. I I tried to get solid rationale for why are you taking down my paper? Why? And I never really got a straight answer. So I went to a different journal and I republished everything later in
0: 2018.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I saw where there was a, another paper that was written that's online where kind of rebutted some of your research and what you did. And then you have a forward or an actual testimonial by Dr. Paul Thomas, who I've actually interviewed in the past, who actually lost his license because of what you did. He took it even further, though, in terms of collecting the data and having a friend of his who's a neonatologist put together the data with him and then even extrapolating that data based on patient visits at his office. And then he presents it to the CDC and he presents it to the Oregon Board of Medicine, and they take his license away.
2: Incredible. And yeah, I'm good friends with Dr. Tom Thomas. And he he all he was doing was showing that the vaccine-friendly plan that the Oregon Medical Board had earlier challenged him, if this is such a good plan, if it's such a good plan to delay vaccination in children, or it's such a good plan to not vaccinate children, prove it scientifically. And so he did it. Right. The Oregon Medical Board had said, prove it. He proved it. And he was paid by that, by proving it, by getting his license suspended in an emergency suspension. And that was literally hours after that paper was published.
1: So there's obviously a cover up from what you're saying, then, with this whole MMR uh, vaccination tied to uh, autism, correct?
0: Yeah,
2: it, it goes much further than just the MMR vaccine. The CDC has only looked at two things regarding the autism epidemic and vaccines, and that's the MMR, and it's also the mercury-containing preservative thimerosal that is still in the flu shot that's given to infants and pregnant women. And the CDC has only looked at those things. But when you look at the collective vaccination schedule, which I have done, which Dr. Thomas has done, which Anthony Mawson, James Lyons-Weiler, we've all done, you see something very similar. You see a relationship between vaccines and autism.
1: Yeah. And when I was talking to Dr. Thomas, he had mentioned that the not only the ties and the connection to autism but he was when he was extrapolating the data he was seeing more childhood illnesses in the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated so without uh, any doubt in his mind these vaccines cause more harm than good i can
2: echo that i've done two different studies that are published in the peer reviewed scientific literature and the first one we looked at actual data from three different medical practices in different locations across the country and we saw increases in infections increases in developmental delays increases in gastrointestinal disorders increases in asthma and those were then echoed i the first study that i did based on the medical practices, was based only on vaccines given in the first year of life. And then we expanded the study and looked at the entire vaccination schedule for those children who are completely unvaccinated versus those completely vaccinated. And we saw ear infections, respiratory infections, allergies, asthma, um, autism, AD, ADHD, all were much, much higher in the vaccinated cohort compared to the unvaccinated group. And literally, the results have jumped off the page. I've seen it. Dr. Thomas has seen it. Anthony Mawson has seen it. There, there are several studies that date back as early as 2005, where they've seen allergies and asthma in, in much, much higher levels, upwards to 10, 11 times higher in vaccinated children Versus those who just uh, who are unvaccinated.
1: So, and what and how is the uh, CDC responding to any of this? Really, crickets. They're they're choosing not to respond,
2: and it's very troubling, James, because the CDC has never done this type of study. They've never looked at the cumulative effect of the entire vaccination schedule. And so if anything, they should be doing this study themselves. And in fact, I've implored the CDC for 20 years. Mr. Kennedy has implored the CDC for nearly 20 years Mm -hmm. to do this study, to just look at what are the long-term health impacts of giving children 73 vaccines between ages 0 and 18. And they just refused to do the study. So, independent researchers, among with me and uh, among my colleagues, have done the job instead. And this is what we found.
1: Yeah. And it seems like they just keep pushing the narrative. And now, of course, with the COVID vaccine, the bio, I call it the bioweapon, they just keep pushing that. And that kind of pushes the childhood vaccinations aside. It's more of a distraction for, okay. And now we're going to compound the vaccination program with <clears throat> this new messenger RNA technology, and uh, it's the parents who want don't want the kids vaccinated have no choice at times because the schools and the school districts are saying, no, you have to have the vaccines in order for to, for your kids to to go to school. So what where does that where do you draw the line if you're a parent?
2: A lot of school districts and a lot of states will flat out lie to parents about the vaccination status. In 45 states in the United States, you can get either a religious exemption or a personal belief exemption or what's called a philosophical exemption to vaccination. And if you live in those 45 states, then you have recourse and you can simply opt out of the vaccination schedule for your ch- children. That's a, that's a secret. Uh, unfortunately, and many school districts will purport that vaccines are required. They must be, you must be adhered to. But for 40, 45 states, that is not the truth. For the five states that remain, that would be California, New York, West Virginia, Connecticut, and Maine. Then you, you are required a medical exemption. You re- the only type of exemption would be if it's medically necessary that you don't get that vaccine. So those are parents that have to make really tough choices. And we found refugees from the state of California because of that, that dirty little fact. And from the other states, because parents don't want to vaccinate their children and they want to have the bodily autonomy in order to have their children participate in public school, participate in private school. So they ended up, I know many families who have moved out of state.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's also pushing a lot of parents to homeschool their children too. Correct.
2: Absolutely. And I'm, I'm a homeschool fan. I, I homeschooled, uh, my wife and I homeschooled my son. It's a little bit of a different situation because of his developmental delay. There were other compounding factors and, and we did live in a state where we could have opted out of vaccination. But I, if that's an option, if families have that option. I find it to be uh, very enriching, very fulfilling. But I also understand that some families they just don't have choices; they don't have these options, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting too. Like I was saying, they're pushing uh, these vaccines, and one of the, of course, as we all know, the big proponents of the vaccine program, and all of a sudden, he's he's the sci- he's a scientist is this is Bill Gates. In fact, I actually have some video footage of him and talking about the vaccine programs and the future vaccine programs and what needs to be done or he thinks needs to be done.
3: Pockets and, and significant pockets of the country where vaccines aren't happening because of those, the anti-vaxxers or whatever you want to call them, who have made significant headway in trying to convince parents they shouldn't vaccinate children. I was just looking at new data today from Orange County, California, with more than a few schools showing between forty and sixty percent children not vaccinated, you could say this is a, we're a victim of success. In the countries where you have measles all the time, nobody gets confused about this. Do you get mad about it? I get more mad about the the deaths we're not avoiding. I spend my time on the countries where you still have, in the case of measles, over three hundred thousand kids dying a year. In the case of diarrheal diseases, over a million a year. There's six million kids a year still dying. Why aren't we getting vaccines out in Africa well, for diarrhea, for respiratory disease? Why don't we have a vaccine for malaria? Those are the things that I, I push forward. I wouldn't say I get angry, but I'm really impatient that we're not moving as fast as I'd like. You can catch the full interview this weekend on...
1: So that's Dr. Gates, Bill Gates, right? He went to medical school, and uh, he knows a lot about um, the uh, effects of not being able to have a vaccine, and so I guess he he could diagnose and treat now, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's called
2: practicing medicine without a license. Last I heard, he was a Harvard dropout, and he knows nothing about medicine. He doesn't have an MD, he doesn't have a PhD, he has not done the biological research And the things that he talks about, he talks about these deaths, he never, it it seems like the vaccine injured somehow just don't exist in his mind. No. And and there have been reports, I follow a researcher by the name of Mark Skidmore out of Michigan State University, and he published a seminal paper that showed that under his estimates, 300,000 people in the United States died. Due to the COVID-19 vaccine, 300,000. Okay. So 300, and there are other uh, analysts that say that estimate is actually conservative and pegged at more of a million deaths in the United States associated with the COVID-19 shot. And yet we can talk about children dying of measles. We can talk about children dying of diarrheal disease, but we never talk about vaccine injury or vaccine death. And it's much, much more prevalent than anybody in the medical establishment would really lead you to believe.
1: You're a biologist, right? Yes. We, We talk about all this stuff about vaccines, And nothing ever gets mentioned about the immune system. Not even during COVID in 2020 was not once was the immune system ever mentioned. And when it was mentioned, it was censored. Why? Because the
2: immune system is wonderfully complex and uh, vaccines are akin to hitting the immune system with a hammer and then expecting it to work properly and it doesn't. When you look at what vaccines stimulate, to say if the, if say if you take vaccine injury off the table, just we're taking it off the table. We're not even considering it. We're just looking at vaccine efficacy. Vaccines really focus on about five percent of the entire immune system, and that's a segment of immunology called B cells, B cells called plasma cells that produce antibodies. And then antibodies tag the pathogens and can, in some instances, eliminate them for destruction. That's only 5% of how the immune system works. The innate immune system, which is a very much larger component of the immune system is the first line of defense. And then you have another part of the acquired immune system called T cells. T cells are not stimulated by vaccination and neither do they participate in the reactions that would be associated with vaccination. And you're looking at such a small portion of the immune system that was developed when we knew so little about the immune system. And yet that technology has not progressed. It's not gotten better. It's not gotten more efficacious. It's just that the safety issues and the lack of efficacy over the years have been just swept under the rug.
1: Yeah. What is it going to come down to? Because it seems like they just want to continue to push the narrative on vaccines as far as making them mandatory or what's it going to come down to?
2: I think with some of what we saw, James, was really played out during the COVID-19 pandemic because a lot of the information that came out regarding the COVID-19 vaccines and the rollout Operation Warp Speed was Operation Cut Corners. Right. And many more people woke up to that and saw that, wait a minute, we're taking a booster that's never been tested on humans. We're taking a booster Or we're approving a vaccine that was tested on less than 2,000 children over a period of less than two months. And there was no true placebo control because... They gave the control group the actual vaccine four months into the clinical trial. So they destroyed the placebo control. And a lot of more a lot more people are really starting to be concerned, are starting to, to connect the dots. Hey, this is a new technology. Why are we rolling out a completely new technology and foisting it on seven, eight billion people? that we want to vaccinate over and over again. And so I think that there, if there is a silver lining to this whole pandemic or whatever, it is that more and more people are waking up and more and more people are voting with their feet and resisting. And I saw uh, a statistic about the latest booster that only 1.3% of the US population has received that latest booster, which oh, incidentally okay. was never tested on humans.
1: I believe it was like, it was it? A, I think they used the population of about a thousand when they did the actual study. I, when I was interviewing Warner Mendenhall, we were talking about that because he had mentioned his client is, he has a client that was a whistleblower for Pfizer and Brooke Jackson, right? Uh, yeah. And they were talking about, I think it was like only a thousand people they used. Then the other thing about controls is you had these people that were parading in the, in the, politics and and, and entertainment that were getting so-called vaccinations on television. Mm -hmm. I don't buy it. I don't believe they were getting the actual vaccine or getting any of that. I, I, I have a little bit of a different theory on this whole vaccination program, and I'm sure as well, and I've been around the medical industry for all my life, practically, is instead of They called it emergency use authorization. I call it experimental use authorization. Is what I call it, and that's what it was. And then the topic of uh, hot lots came up. Hot lots is a researcher's term in the vaccination industry, where I this is my theory, and it could be I can be totally off base on it since it was under experimental use authorization and the vaccine manufacturers had no responsibility for any liability with death or injury. They, of course, with all vaccinations, and this is for the listeners and viewers as well, of the medical truth podcast, every single vaccination, you can look on a vaccination card. If you had the vaccination has a lot number on it. And that lot number is attached to the actual batches as to where they go. Geographically speaking. And on my website, under free resources, I have some VAERS data and some some tools that that the, the listener and viewer can go to, and they can type in the lot number and see where certain what the injuries were based on that right. lot number or deaths or whatever. But I think what they did is they've it was under it was like one big global experiment. Besides this thing about Gates always talking about depopulation. Right, and what they did is, I think they manufactured <clears throat> each and every lot differently for different geographic areas based on the concentrations, and they even had their their actual controlled doses in those lots, and then they had a higher concentration of whatever they were putting in there—a lot of messenger RNA and the hydrogels and the nanoparticles and all that. Then and, and and then they basically can measure the response based on that manufacturing practice. That's what I believe.
0: You raise a really good point. And there was
2: a study that came out of Denmark that looked at the rate of adverse events by lot number and by lot size. And there were three different trends that came out. There were hot lots, Mm -hmm. there were medium lots, and then there were, were, were what you might call placebo lots. Right. And the placebo lots had virtually no deaths, very few adverse events. And, but as opposed to the hot lots that were generally smaller lots, but they had many adverse events and many deaths associated with them. And there were three linear trends in that paper that showed in an increase in death rate and precipitous increase in death rate in these really hot lots with the number of vaccines distributed. And we've, at CHD, we're getting ready to uh, submit a paper for publication where we can actually see where the hot lots went in the United States. Yeah, and and it's really it's very telling. It's very different. I I hesitate as a scientist. I don't really go into like the geopolitical trends, but it's stunning in some of the areas where you see where these lots were distributed. You see so many more deaths, so many more injuries. So many more deaths, specifically like in South Dakota, injuries in Kentucky and Tennessee really stood out. And, and it's odd why so much variability in terms of the number of injuries per vaccine lot.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned geopolitical. And the thing is, I that's one thing I don't try to do on this podcast is I don't want to politicize anything. Sure, I look at it like you're a scientist, the scientific method of having a control group and having certain population using certain concentrations. I know when I did my undergraduate research, we did, we used the oozing chamber and we measured right. the opening and closing potential, sodium and potassium channels and all that other stuff. And we use different concentrations. It's the same thing here, except, and I think this is the reason why the, the government and, and the manufacturers didn't want to take any liability, because as I said, it's the, I called it the, Not the emergency use authorization, but the experimental use authorization is what I call it. And that's the reason why they didn't want to take any liability as well. Because again, it was a big experiment with these messenger RNA vaccines. I don't think COVID was about, COVID in 2020 was about COVID. It was about the vaccine is what it was. Right. Because nothing made sense from the very beginning with covid in terms of mask mandates and social distancing and contact tracing, they didn't start talking about contact tracing until, I don't know, five or six, seven months afterwards. You don't talk about contact tracing five or six months out. Contact tracing takes place ASAP right away. You start to track the first spreader, the first vector of that particular virus, and then you start keeping track of it. And they had the resources for that, But they had to cover their butts by coming up with all these different uh, narratives in the middle of the game. So the right hand never knew what the left hand was doing. Even Fauci was talking about mask, don't wear a mask. And I even did a a little short segment on that, is that it was a sick and twisted game of Simon Says, of take off the mask, put the mask back on. So it was a big joke. It was a really big joke. And we had gone through covid In the out in with SARS sudden acute respiratory syndrome, when I had the medical house call practice back in the fall of two thousand three and four, we went through a was a a COVID outbreak, which was SARS. It was a a flu season that year.
0: And when you look at
2: when you look at the intent in two thousand twenty, we were was like we were, and I'm going to borrow your term. We played this game of Simon Simon Says, and but everything then pointed out to. Vaccinate, vaccinate, right. roll out the vaccine. And obviously that was a ploy and it was a ploy to marginalize things that would work like zinc and vitamin C and vitamin D3, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, all of those were marginalized because that would take away the emergency use, uh, use authorization, the ability to authorize a vaccine. And that's all they were going to do. And that's all they really wanted to do. And why in the heck did they use a new technology that had never been used in a vaccine in the first place?
1: Exactly. I got another clip of Bill Gates. And I'll tell you something in a minute when after this. Okay.
0: To fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. Today at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, he announced that his project called CEPI or the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations has $460 million. He sat down with CBS News to talk about how that money will go to preparing for the next great epidemic.
3: The idea is to take a a new way of building vaccines that could let us develop in less than a year a novel vaccine called DNA RNA vaccines. And so we'll fund a few projects to build specific vaccines, but Not only will we get that, we'll prove out that these platforms can work, we'll understand the regulatory issues, and it gives us a chance of uh, being able to respond in time when the next epidemic hits. We're in the same situation uh, we were in before, where it takes years uh, to build a new uh, vaccine. But the scientific idea of of these new platforms uh, could radically change that. Uh, so that a lot of the steps are sitting there ready, the factory piece, understanding the regulatory piece, and you just have to plug in some information, do some quick safety profiles, and then you can get into manufacturing quite rapidly. We need vaccines for a lot of things, not just epidemics. We need a HIV vaccine, a tuberculosis vaccine, a malaria vaccine. All of those things are in the works, and over the next decade, I think most of those we'll get solutions for.
1: So this is the Goliath we're up against.
2: It is and unfortunately you find these individuals including Gates and including Fauci giddy over the opportunity to use this pandemic preparedness to test out this vaccine platform and you have to ask yourself what to, what came first. They were doing pandemic simulation simulations of, around a coronavirus in the fall, in September of 2019, and they were talking about how it would be SARS-CoV that would be the next pandemic. And they were right, these prognosticators. And so you have to ask yourself, and then it's followed up by the Wuhan lab leak, which was verboten. Nobody would talk about that. And of course you were unscientific if you talked about the lab leak. But now yet in hindsight, we know that the evidence so strongly supports that it's in, in patient zero actually came from the Wuhan lab. Things are looking mighty, mighty suspicious. And when, when I see clips of Bill Gates, now he's, he's rubbing his hands together in anticipation, (laughs) talking about Marburg.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. He's a, a very, I think there's something wrong with this individual. He's got, if anybody else did this, they'd throw him in a rubber room with a straight jacket on or or years ago they would have arrested somebody like that and put him in a federal pre- penitentiary for many years
2: this is a menace to somebody. <laughs> it's like having a three-year-old with a loaded gun. You, you just, you cannot do this. And yeah. when you look at his, his expertise or his lack of expertise right. in this particular domain, and yet he's, he's setting policy with the bigwigs and flying private jets to Davos and figuring out what they're going to do with the proletariat while, while the pandemic was the, what, the hugest redistribution of wealth on record. It's just absolutely preposterous.
1: Yeah. And this can be stopped because if you look at this and I tell everybody, and again, I designed this podcast and I I keep the politics out of it as I, and I parroted so many times on this podcast, when it comes to these vaccines, take the politics out of it. You have a God-given right to choose what you want to do with your body. You don't need Joe Biden. You don't need. Donald Trump, you don't need any of these people to tell you that you got to get this vaccine. Not even Bill Gates, not Soros, not any of these people. They don't rule your body. You do. And it's your God-given right to get to, to take the vaccine if you want. And listen, I don't begrudge people that want to wear a mask. You want to wear a mask? Have at it. Wear t- 20 of them. But don't throw it down, shove it down my throat that I got to wear it or take a vaccine that's going to kill me or give me some kind of illness because it's not going to happen. And I tell people, take the politics out of it. And this has caused so much division. And this is both sides of the political spectrum, by the way. This is not just any one side, right? Because they're all in on on it together. And this is to divide and conquer people. That's what this is all about is to divide. All these distractions are to divide us, to divide and conquer. And it's a club, and we're not in this club. Is what it is.
2: No, we're not in the club. And I will I will echo your sentiment of taking the politics out of vaccination. We're always told that we need to do things for the greater good. And there was so much jingoistic slogans about you right. know, taking the vaccine. And it was an American thing to do. And people were virtue signaling on social media right. when they got the COVID-19 shot. Take it from somebody that has a vaccine injured child. It goes down to the individual. You make these decisions based on your own bodily autonomy and based on the individual, nobody gets a pass. It's not like vaccine injury just picks certain people and you are somehow exempt from doing it. Nobody really gets a pass and anybody is susceptible to having some type of life-changing vaccine reaction.
1: Exactly. So your book, "Vaxed Unvaxed, what is that about? You want to share that with the viewers and listeners of the Medical Truth Podcast.
0: What we did
2: is we looked for the studies that were hiding in plain sight that the government refused to do. And this was precipitated by a meeting that Mr. Kennedy had with Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins in 2017. And the specific reason for the meeting was to ask them where the Vax Unvax studies They could produce none. Fauci swore up and down during the meeting. Yes, these studies exist. They even wheeled in carts that had papers on them and they looked through them. And when they determined that none of these were really Vax on Vax studies, then Fauci threw up his hands and said, I'll just email them to you. And of course, that's the last that they heard from Fauci. But then Bobby contacted me in 2019 and said, let's look for these studies. Let's look and we'll look on the National Library of Medicine Other reputable web services like the ISI World of Science. And we will find studies where they had unvaccinated control groups. And we will, and we started featuring them on Bobby's Instagram account. And I thought when he called me in 2019, I thought, oh, we'll get a dozen or so. We'll get a few. We'll find a few of these studies that are that I, I knew of a few just off the top of my head. But boy, 60 studies later, even prior to the pandemic and vaccine injuries associated with the COVID-19 shot and 60 Instagram posts later, Bobby gets deplatformed from Instagram and we decided to write a book. And so we kept on doing research did research for two more years and filled in the COVID-19 chapter. In here, we have a book that has over 100 studies where they have an unvaccinated control group. And so we wanted to highlight what happens when you have a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study. What has the government been trying to cover up? What have they been lying about? And when we find these studies hiding in plain sight, what do they say?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's a you mentioned something about a twelve points about the vaxxed unvaxxed and that's right. What are some of those? Just to briefly go over those. One of
2: the one of the issues is <clears throat> that the FDA does not do placebo controlled clinical trials for vaccines. Very rarely will they use a true saline placebo. Of course the placebo is what you give the control group in any experiment. They, you give them some substance and then they're blinded in that they don't know whether it's the vaccine or the placebo, but vaccines get a pass. The placebo-controlled study is the gold standard for the FDA for drugs and biologics, but somehow for vaccines, you can use other vaccines as a control. In fact, when they approved the Gardasil 9 vaccine, which is the vaccine that is purported to prevent cervical cancer when they tested that out for the FDA clinical trials they used the original Gardasil form- formulation as the control and so FDA does not do and we were hired press we went through FDA clinical trial after clinical trial we could find no placebo control clinical trials they were all done using other vaccines as the control other vaccine components as the control, and it was done basically to minimize the difference between the adverse events in the experimental group, the vaccinated group, and the adverse events in the control group. You could bring up that control group and what should have been a floor of a saline placebo. They move it up, and then the vaccines don't look so bad. They're to a control, but you had these control groups that had myriad adverse events These in. And even with the COVID 19 shot, people will arguably say, yeah, they used a saline placebo. They turned around within four months of the start of the experiment and they started giving the control group vaccines. They actually started giving the control group COVID shots. So they destroyed the control group and we have no long term safety studies. We have no long term data because there is no control group left over for the Pfizer. There is no control group left over for the Moderna. And I dare say, I don't know as much about Novavax, but I dare say they've done the same thing.
1: So they're pretty much uh, full court press on all these vaccines then on just basically giving them at will the way they want to. The other thing is I interviewed Dr. William makis He's a radiological oncologist out of Canada. And we had a discussion in detail about these new technology that they are using for all vaccines, all messenger RNA vaccines. And now they're saying that the messenger RNA is going to even is entering into the food supply with livestock with cattle and pork and and even poultry so i don't know how true that is
2: this is a ubiquitous platform and this is the when you hear gates talk about using messenger RNA as a delivery system or as a delivery cassette for making transgenic humans Basically, essentially what you're doing, we, the technology that they used for making these vaccines and they, and I have heard the same studies I haven't uh, confirmed yet, but I've heard the same stories about delivering the mRNA into livestock that presumably would be, be consumed, but it's the same technology used in the laboratory to transfect cells to do genetic modification of cells. But yet they've told us, no, oh, no, it's not going to integrate into the genome, even though we know that's wrong. it's been pro- already been disproven that it can go and can and will go into the genome. And when I was in graduate school, we used the liposomal formulation in order to transfect human cells. It looked a lot like the lipid nanoparticle. And right. so you can't tell me that we haven't created genetically modified humans through this experiment.
1: Yeah, I was talking I just had a interviewed Dr. JJ Cooey. He's also a bio, biochemist and a researcher in immunology and neurobiology and he was with the University of Pittsburgh. He got fired for being vocal about this whole thing with COVID. And he used the term ference. I'm sorry, transfection. Correct. Transfection. Yes.
2: That's and where I got it. it. I'm friends with Jay. Okay. Yeah. So transfection.
1: Yeah. And yes. you got into detail about that. And so again, the nanoparticle, is that used to protect and encase the messenger RNA? Is that what that's doing? It protects and encases the messenger RNA, but it
2: also provides direct delivery through the cell membrane. And so what happens is when the lipid nanoparticle membrane, it's like watching, if you ever see two bubbles that are basically membrane, soap membranes interact right and they come together and they form one, Right. that's the same thing that happens with the lipid nanoparticle, is that it becomes one with the cell membrane and then it delivers its payload into the cell. It can do the same thing into the nucleus through the nuclear membrane, and so it can get into the nucleus. There's no reason why it can't. And, and that reason why it's made of lipid is it mimics the same composition of cell membranes. And then that way they can deliver the payload or the messenger RNA directly into cells.
1: Right. In other words, the, because the cell membrane, as I remember being having a biology background, is a lipid bilayer, right? So when you get this nanoparticle that's injected, it goes into the body, it disperses through the bloodstream, Right. And then it starts scavenging around looking for different cells in different parts of different organs. And then it penetrates that lipid bilayer of that particular cell, whether it's hepatocytes or whatever the cells may be. Right, right.
2: Circulatory, circulatory uh, endothelium, whatever. Right. Yeah.
1: So then it goes from what transcription to translation of what? The spike protein? Is that what it's doing? It's producing the it's, actual it's spike.
2: Translating the spike protein, but now we know. That not only is there messenger RNA for the spike protein in there, which is strengthened, usually mRNA is degraded very quickly by the cell because mRNA is pro-inflammatory. It causes inflammation. High concentrations of mRNA should not be tolerated by cells, neither should we be getting them through our vaccines. It's inflammatory. But this has been this has been fortified with a an artificial nucleotide called pseudouridine. And so it it persists longer. And then, in addition, there's carryover of DNA contaminants, and that's been verified by looking at different lots of vaccine lots of vaccines and DNA carryover, and that DNA can directly transcribe will directly go into the genome of the human cell. And in addition, the mRNA can reverse transcribe. It happens all the time, and you can get the DNA that codes the spike protein. In the human genomes, in the human DNA integration, human reverse transcription of messenger RNA and integration of DNA happens all the time.
1: So is it actually producing these spikes, too, when it does do go from transcription or was it transcription? To translation.
2: I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. Translation. Excuse me. Yes.
1: So it's actually producing the spikes, too, correct? Certain it is producing
2: this. That was the intent of the vaccine was to produce the spike protein. And then the immune system would raise up a response to the spike protein. And once it did raise up the response, then that would be the vaccination and the quote unquote immunization. The unfortunate part of that is that people um, who are suffering vaccine injuries, they're producing spike proteins for periods of up to six months. That's just not good for you. The spike protein is toxic. We were told that it was going to stay in the upper arm for two weeks. Right. But that's not the case. And and even these six-month studies that they've done around production of spike protein in humans, usually you would expect that the spike protein could be produced for a longer period of time, because usually after six months is when they terminate the study.
1: Yeah. So when this spike protein circulates, because I know there's also the the theory that it tears up the endothelial cells in the cardiovascular system, especially in the micro. Uh, vascular system around uh, the vessels that peripherate around the the colon, because I know a lot of people have had necrosis of the colon. There was um, also uh, certain parts of the colon. There was a uh, necrosis of uh, people who have diabetes, had right. uh, just raging diabetic neuropathy and and circulatory issues with their lower extremities, particularly in their feet, where the microvascular system is innervated a lot. There's a lot of innervation in the, you know, in the foot and the lower extremities. So is that what's the spikes are just basically causing a lot of these clots? Is that what's happening? That's one of
2: the things that's happening. And if you look at the spike protein and the interaction with a spike protein with what's called the ACE2 receptor, receptor are on human blood cells and especially a cell type called platelets. And platelets are what activates clotting. And so you introduce the spike protein into the circulatory system, it activates the platelets, then you get micro clotting, then you get larger and larger clotting. And then that begats these circulatory disorders and clots have been shown to build up due to exposure to the spike protein. And physiologically, it makes perfect sense. They interact with the platelets. The platelets are responsible for clotting. As soon as you have an activated platelet, then you get clotting events. And I dare say even those people that have like subclinical injuries, they probably have microcirculatory disorders because of the the preponderance of clots. You can take any individual and you can look at a clotting assay after they receive the vaccine and their clotting parameters go way up.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know. I've said this on many episodes. I know eight people personally that have, have died from this vaccine. Wow. And Yeah. And one as young as what, 30, 30 years old, mm-hmm. he dropped dead from cardiac arrest. His brother found him dead in the bathroom in his home. And friends that died of cardiac issues uh, shortly after getting the vaccine. One girl I know, she died of uh, liver cancer right away, and she was healthy. Basically, They they now... In fact, I was just talking to Dr. Rasnick about that, right. turbo, turbo cancers.
0: Absolutely yeah. horrible.
1: Absolutely horrible.
2: And you're hearing more Tragic. and more about it. There are case studies now in the literature of lymphoma that is developing mere weeks after vaccination. It starts, it starts out looking like swollen lymph nodes, just lymphadenopathy. And then they go back and check. And lymphoma starts to occur. And you've, I've seen biopsy tissue. I've seen photographic evidence of lymphoma right under the skin, in the lymph nodes. And these cancers are very fast. They're very aggressive. And it's interesting in some of the medical li- literature that's more pro-pharma, they talk about treatable cancers. Come on, cancer is cancer.
0: Yeah. No, right. you,
2: can't, you can't brush this off like you tried to brush off myocarditis.
1: Right. Right. And they're doing that. They're trying to do that.
2: Oh, exactly. They're trying to normalize it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not normal. I, I don't remember young teenage kids dying on a ball field ever. That was unheard of.
2: With you know, inflamed myocardium, Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And yet now we have we have these disorders. There was even, I can't remember the name of the hospital in New York, that had a public service promo about, the how common myocarditis was in children (laughs) and how you could come to the hospital and they would treat your myocarditis and you'd be
0: all better.
1: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What advice do you have for parents out there that have children that are going to be vaccinated or have been vaccinated for that matter?
2: I want, I want as many people to get this book and read it. And really read it. It's got very clear graphics. It distills down the science into what I believe and what Mr. Kennedy believes are understandable terms. So you can look at this is what happens with the vaccinated group. This is what happens with the unvaccinated group. It's it, we tried to make it as clear as that. And so I hope that that many parents, new parents, people considering becoming parents, will look at this book, read it, bo- read the book, and then take their book to the me- their medical practitioners buy them a copy too and have frank conversations about what vaccines are doing and yeah. what the scientific evidence shows the vast majority of the studies that are in the book are in well established traditional medical literature it's not it's not fly by night journals and when right. and predatory journals or what are they going to call them this week these are papers that have been Published in the journal pediatrics that's associated with the American Academy of Pediatrics, New England Journal of Medicine, other reputable journals, Lancet. And these are, so they're, they're not t- talked about very much, but they're hiding in plain sight. So I hope as many people will read the book. And will and this will begat more and more conversations with their practitioners, so they can make really informed decisions. I'm not a medical professional, so I don't tell people whether to vaccinate or not, but I do want them to know what the science says.
1: Yeah, and that's just it. This data that's presented by professionals, this is not conspiracy theory. I and mean, these are facts. This is it's these are actual events of of. The consequences of getting these vaccines. So this data that's accumulated is not made up because right. let's say we're a conspiracy theorist. You're going to spend your time to be a conspiracy theorist and waste your time. What do you have to gain? You're Not, not a whole lot. You're not not a whole, Bill- there's not a whole lot of
2: money in conspiracy theories.
1: No, but there is for Bill Gates to be pushing these vaccines.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you look at somebody that talks about vaccination in one breath and population control in the other breath, it, it makes
1: you wonder. It does. Do you have a copy of the book? I didn't have a...
2: I do. I have a copy of the book right here standing next to me. It's called Vax and Vax, Let the Science Speak. I yeah. Can do that without getting a big glare on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and myself... It's not a difficult read we wanted, and we wanted eye-popping graphics that you could show your friends, you can show your practitioners, and we want the message really just to jump off the page.
1: Yeah, it could also be found on skyhorsepublishing.com. That's skyhorsepublishing.com. It's not on, is it on Amazon too?
2: It is on Amazon still. Oh. Good. It's still on Amazon
1: still, still yeah.
2: and yeah, so you can get on Amazon. You can get it on barnesandnoble.com. Some local okay, booksellers are selling it as well.
1: Yeah. Skyhorse Publishing. And I'll also put on my Substack. That's substack.com forward slash medical truth podcast. I'll post this recording and I'll, I'll even put a image of the book and a direct link to the to Skyhorse Publishing for that.
2: Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, James.
1: Dr. Hooker, thank you so much for Being on the Medical Truth Podcast, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, it's
2: been my pleasure. What a wonderful conversation. Thank
0: you. Absolutely.
1: Thank you, sir. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Medical Truth Podcast. For the latest episodes, go to www.medicaltruthpodcast.com. You can also find the Medical Truth Podcast on Rumble, as well as all the major podcast platforms like Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeart.